Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Kindness Rebellion. This episode, I'm really excited to uh, share with you. It's with Logan Millsap, a fellow Springville community member who I met just through a couple people online and on our Springville community page um, asking this question of like, how can we reinvigorate community? How can we build a sense of community here in Springville? And me... Um, and two other people, including Logan, reached out and said, I don't know, but let's meet up and talk about it. Let's figure it out. And, um, you know, we not a lot came of that meeting, unfortunately, except for the fact that I got to meet Logan and I got to um, start following him and seeing his perspectives and things like that. Logan is currently running for uh, city council here in Springville. And um, especially after this conversation, I, I give him my full support. I love his uh, his way of thinking and his ability to articulate these um, very simple changes that can make huge impacts in our community. And uh, and I think it's just very very valuable and very important that he's even interested in trying to operate within these spaces to make changes in our community because. Um, you know, in this space of, uh, you know, systems thinking and and activism, if you will, uh, it's really easy to talk a lot, but not really, not really do much. And um, that's something I've really been calling out a lot on this podcast, Um, especially throughout this second season, as you will see, I, uh, I'm getting frustrated with uh, just talking. Um, So I, I'm trying to hold my feet to the fire more. And uh, as I'm pr- producing these episodes and I'll, I'll be calling myself out even more saying like, hey, here's what I'm trying to do. Here's what I want to do. Um, and in that spirit, uh, a lot of the things that uh, I talk about in this episode with Logan here is uh, about more out of car experiences, which uh, I've been focusing on a lot. Granted, it's a lot easier because I've started a new job that is uh, remote. So I just don't sim- I simply don't need to use my car all that often. Um, but I do try to say like, oh, you know what? If I need to just run to the grocery store for a short thing, um, maybe I'll just take my bike. Or even uh, if, uh, you know, my partner and I want to want to go somewhere close by we don't need a car. Let's just walk. Let's just take our bikes or something. Um, those small choices have actually made a pretty big difference. And, uh, as you'll listen in this conversation with Logan, the more and more we have those, we make those small choices. Um, the more it impacts our, our mental being. And, um, and I think as we, as a culture start to reevaluate what it is to be within car culture, We'll understand why it's not even good for us. And this is all aside from the fact that cars are destroying the planet, okay? (laughs) Like, we're already well aware that the emissions from cars is uh, creating the, and fossil fuels is creating the greenhouse effects that are uh, the main drivers of climate change. Um, Like, we understand that, but a lot of us are like, "Eh, we're dependent upon our cars. Maybe we don't have to be. So make sure to listen to the full episode. Um, I love everything that Logan talks about and the way his mind works. And this is a really, really good conversation. So um, let me know what you think of it in the comments and uh, make sure to share, like, subscribe, all that good stuff. Thank you so much. This is a podcast about rejecting tyranny and oppression by cultivating both systemic and individual change. I believe the only way to create this kind of monumental change is to inspire understanding, love, and kindness. From there, we can work to embody these essential values in our cultural systems and in our individual lives. My hope is that by effectively communicating with anyone and everyone, we can establish a shared vision for humanity and explore new ways of living to build a better world for all of us.
I'm your host, Nathan Jones, and this is The Kindness Rebellion. Logan, thank you so much for coming on to The Kindness Rebellion, man. I really appreciate uh, you being willing to come onto this podcast, even though it's uh, your first time ever experiencing a podcast. Is that right? <laughs> it is, yeah. And I'm really glad to be here. I've listened to a couple of your episodes and I've really enjoyed them. So. Perfect. I appreciate that. And just kind of for a little uh, background uh, for our listeners, um, I met you at um, uh, Shaunalee's house when it was really cool because she just kind of posted, or no, it, it might have been... Um, uh, Oh, the other person. I'm totally um, forgetting her name. Uh, Fabiana. Fabiana. Thank yep. you. Thank you. Yeah, Fabiana had posted on um, our Springville community page just saying, like, what can we do to help um, build up our communities? What can we do to kind of reinvigorate that communal atmosphere, right? Yeah. And it was really cool because Shauna responded and was just like, hey, I've also got this interest and uh, let's meet at my house and let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then us four all showed up and it was like, even though, you know, I don't know if anything really big came out of it. And I think that's because that there's a lot to say about like what needs to be done for community action to change. Oh, right. For sure. Um, but it was cool to just see um, all of us get together and be like, Hey, let's talk about how we can help change the world, you know, change this place. And uh, ever since then, you know, I kind of uh, followed you on Facebook and stuff like that and started seeing a lot of your posts about um, how you you've, uh, gone, what is it, like a year or two without a car it's, now? It's been two years car-free, yep. Nice. Uh, that's super cool to me. Yeah. And uh, and just a lot of your ideas about um, kind of car culture and building like um, safe infrastructure uh, around car culture and um, helping people who, you know, uh, maybe don't have a car or are choosing not to use one like yourself can get around more safely within our communities. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that just, that was something that I was really, really interested in and uh, I was really happy to have you uh, on this podcast today so that we could kind of talk a little bit about that. Well, and it's my favorite subject, so I'm happy (laughs) to talk about it. Sweet. So let's let's actually start right there. Like you said, you've been uh, two years without a car now. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that, why you made that decision and what that what that's been like. Yeah. All right. Uh, Maybe it's good to start with like kind of my bicycle genealogy, I guess, where um, my like growing up, I just kind of rode my bike everywhere to get around as a kid. You know, you don't think anything of it. and I think that kind of came from my dad because growing up, he, he had a very large family and obviously they didn't have extra cars for all the kids. So mm-hmm. he and many of his brothers got bicycles and rode all up and down the Salt Lake Valley and, and used that for transportation to and from work. Cool. And then I think he instilled that in us and, and my mother helped to kind of instill like a can-do spirit in all of us kids. And so, um, you know, in high school years, we didn't also didn't have extra cars laying around. So... Mm-hmm. I just used a bike to get everywhere. All my friends knew that they should expect anytime they find Logan, they're also going to find his bike. So. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. And so did you kind of never even have your own personal car? I, I mean, we did. So then I, I graduated high school, went off to college, and we have this kind of this idea in society that you sort of, you graduate out of a car, right? Mm-hmm. Like cars are for kids. They're a fun thing. They're a fun toy. But once you're old enough, once you're an adult, you, you get a car and you mm-hmm. run around and hurry around like everybody else. Um, <laughs> so when I moved off to college, got a little beat up pickup truck and mm-hmm. drove that quite a lot. And I'm not like anti-driving, you know, mm-hmm. I, I enjoy driving. I, I like a road trip as much as anyone else. Yeah. Um, but after my wife and I got married, we, you know, she had her car, I had my car. So we had two cars and we were paying for insurance, paying for mm. repairs, paying for tires. Uh, and we decided, um, I, I read a book called Walkable City mm. by Jeff Speck. And I decided that like, 
maybe we'd try going car light. Maybe we'd get rid of one of our cars. So we, we dropped my pickup truck. We just had her car for a while. And we were trying to do more and more of our trips without our car. You know, like, let's, instead of driving to the grocery store, let's walk to the grocery store and enjoy the fresh air. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually got to the point where we were hardly using our car at all. And then it, it broke down and we're like, okay, all right, we I guess we're car free now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's obviously it saved us a lot of money and, mm-hmm. and headache in that way. But uh, it's all the other things, all the social and emotional and kind of spiritual aspects of getting out of a car that mm. have been most rewarding, I think. That's awesome. Let's actually talk right about that. Because, yeah, you mentioned that book. Um, who is it by? Walkable City? It's Walkable City by Jeff Speck. Yeah, Walkable it's kind of, if anyone's ever wondering about like urbanism, walkability, mm-hmm. bicycles, that's maybe like the best primer to start with because it kind of covers a little bit of everything. Yeah. Okay. I'll definitely check it out because that's something that I've been really interested in and, and uh, I'd love to hear more about kind of all of those factors that played into that decision to to focus more on walkability or mm-hmm. um, just transporting yourself without a vehicle. Um, like what what are some of those benefits that you've been seeing? I mean, you, you did mention the cost as well, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, everyone, cost. especially now that I hear gas prices are really, really high <laughs> and um, it, it, you, it adds up so quickly. So in our time being car free, uh, recently my sister and brother-in-law, they went out of town and they're like, well, you can use our car while we're gone. So we Mm kind of dipped our toes back into the car life for a week. And we were shocked. We're like, whoa, this, like, we spent so much money on gas just in a single week of just running around town a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, um, strengthened our resolve to not do that as much. Um, what were some of like the social, emotional, and the spiritual factors that you were referring to as well? Um, when, Cars, hmm, it, it, there's, you know, here on Kindness Rebellion that like so many of these problems in our society, they're all just the same knot all tangled mm. together. Um, so it's hard to know exactly where to begin in a conversation like like this. Yeah, um, that's fair. When we get out of our cars, like when we're traveling around here, we'll say it this way. When we're traveling around through our city mm-hmm. in our cars, we're all in our own little submarine. Mm. And like a submarine insulates you from the water around you, your car insulates you from literally all of your neighbors, insulates mm. you from the bird song, insulates you from the smell of the blossoms mm-hmm. or, you know, tasting snowflakes on your tongue. Yeah. Um, when you get out of your cars, it's like what I like to call out of car experiences because there's all these kind of these things you don't even realize you're, you're missing out on. Mm. Um, Sorry, it, it is hard to know exactly where to start no, talking about some of this. But, yeah, no worries. Um, my, one of my favorite out-of-car experiences, because I'm a little bit of an extrovert sometimes, mm-hmm. um, you bump into people all the time. You bump mm-hmm. into to neighbors and friends and acquaintances, and or you'll just be like on a street corner and you'll start a conversation with, with the guy standing there waiting to cross the light mm-hmm. and... Uh, that kind of stuff happens way more than anyone would expect. Yeah. So in a city, so our, we live here in Springville. We have what thirty six thousand people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's I a pretty, so. pretty. It feels like a ton of people, but also it's like kind of a small city. Yeah. No matter how big or small your city is, you'll be surprised at how tight knit it can feel mm. if you are out of your car a little bit more often. Mm-hmm. You just bump into your neighbors a lot more. Yeah, which is a very important um, piece of establishing and building community. Um, that is that is actually one of the major reasons why I wanted you on the podcast is that this, the theme for this season is um, building community. 
And one thing that I've been really noticing is that uh, that sort of submarine effect that you're talking about when you're in your car, because like um, one of the things I also notice is that it's a lot easier to uh, like have a fear response triggered when you're in a car because it's a very mm-hmm. uh, dangerous situation. Um, and so it's easy to like dehumanize your, your fellow people that it are is, driving yeah. in a very scary situation with you as well. Um, and then I've also found that like just by, you know, deciding like, hey, you know what, let's walk to this place or hey, uh, let's grab our bike and let's bike to this place. There is that extra sense of like, whoa, look at everything that's around here. And I'm not just buzzing my ears with, uh, you know, my music or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I love hearing that. And it's really amazing. And I think um, one of the things you said that was really uh, valuable and important is that you're, you said you're not anti-car. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned that it, you're more focused on uh, out-of-car experiences. You want to you kind of dive a little bit deeper into that, what, what you mean by that. Yeah, uh, when I say that I'm not anti-car, I mean, anytime you have a conversation about this kind of stuff, people will always say, well, what about X, Y, and Z mm-hmm. situation where I couldn't possibly get around without a car? Mm-hmm. Um, to which I'd say you probably could get around and do that without a car. But but even so, I, it's not, a, it's not an either-or. It's not all or nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are plenty of societies that are not so car-centric, mm-hmm. um, but people still own cars and yeah. even even have high rates of car ownership. For example, I think the Netherlands has pretty high rates of car ownership, but if you go to cities in the Netherlands, uh, their cities are not overwhelmed and dominated by the car. Their mm-hmm. society is not built around the car. Mm-hmm. They do not spend huge gobs of their transportation of their their personal income dollars on transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think we, over the last century-ish, have just become completely blind to how much we have built everything in our society mm. around cars, yes. moving them and storing them and paying for them. Mm-hmm. That I'm really glad you brought that up. That's kind of where I was trying to steer us. Yeah. <laughs> that steer, right? Um, so that's I think that's a factor that people don't think about a lot. I think... Um, for one thing, they, they don't really understand just how car-centric the U.S. is, mm-hmm. uh, maybe compared to a lot of other places, um, how poor our public transportation systems are as a result, and kind of what are the effects of that. And, uh, and I'm curious to hear what you think about this, because I, I've sort of identified some of the biggest problems with um, like a car-centric culture is the space, the safety, and I want to say like people's well-being as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious what what you think about that, and um, and kind of just how can we use that template to dive deeper into what you were talking about, where we can, uh, or what it would take, or maybe what are some of the benefits to building um, society and infrastructure that isn't so car centric. That's that's a lot of great questions there. So yeah, there's a lot. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. Um, People here in the U.S. often think that like, oh, well, sure, that's great for European cities or Asian cities. You know, they they were built before the car. Here in the U.S., we built our cities around the car and with the car. Mm. So we can't, and in this U.S. is so big, we can't really do anything without the car. And um, it's not true, actually. Uh, Even in a little city like this here in Springville, we, there are a lot of places here in town where you can see that they've bulldozed homes or businesses to make room for parking lots mm-hmm. or places where we've we've destroyed front yards to make the roads wider. So here mm-hmm. in the U.S., we didn't build our cities around the car. We destroyed our cities that existed before cars. We destroyed mm-hmm. those cities to accommodate cars. Wow. Um, and the it become let's see. So you said the safety and people's well-being and mm-hmm. um, 
this this destruction that we've wrought upon our own cities obviously comes with a really high cost in in human lives. It's, mm. I think it's about forty thousand Americans every single year die in in car crashes. Wow. Like, uh, if we if we asked your audience, you know, if, if if they were here in the room with us, we could mm -hmm. ask them like, it, raise your hand if you know someone who's been in a car wreck. And I think mm -hmm. most of us have. I've yeah. been in a couple myself. Mm -hmm. um, we could ask people, raise your hand if you know someone who who's seriously injured in a car wreck, or if you know someone who has been killed in a car wreck. Mm -hmm. And most of us know have lost someone we love mm -hmm. to traffic violence, and it's this thing in. The U.S. that we completely take for granted, you know, people that oh, we, we call them accidents, really, mm -hmm. uh, because like it just happens. That's yep. just kind of part of getting around. Nothing but, we can do about it. Yeah, but there's a lot we can do about it. Mm -hmm. And and other other cities, other countries, they've shown that this isn't this doesn't have to exist this way. There's mm -hmm. a lot of things we can do about it. And um, acknowledging that we have that problem is is obviously the very first step. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And what are what are some of those um, be transitions or changes uh, to our infrastructure, just to our um, to our you know social spaces um, that would need to happen? Just I mean, maybe just to alleviate that that awful number of forty thousand people dying per year. What right. what like uh, even if we are like okay, um, obviously our infrastructure is built around cars now, mm -hmm. um, so it's not going to make sense to just say everyone get rid of your car. Um, but like what kinds of steps can we take to, um, to just make things safer um, and to make sure that we're just not having more senseless uh, vehicle violence or traffic violence um, as a result of this infrastructure? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, we, there's, how we got here is, uh, you know, in the, in the 50s, after World War II, we had all this money, we had all this dynamism, and we wanted to put everyone to work. We t undertook the, the interstate highway project. Mm. Uh, and we, we we tasked engineers. We said, "Hey, we have this problem. We want to connect the whole country with this grid of freeways." Um, and obviously, driving in cars at high speeds can be dangerous. So we need you to design this system to be as safe as possible. Mm -hmm. And they did actually a great job of that, in the sense that they made they straightened out roads. They they made it so there weren't any sharp curves. Mm -hmm. They made it so that you have nice wide shoulders. So if you lose control of your car for a minute, you can recover before you crash. Mm. Um, they, they, they did a really good job of designing this high speed car moving infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Then once that was basically built out across the US, um, we took those same ideas and started applying them to the roads in our cities. Mm. Uh, so we, we, at, at every intersection, if you look at it, it's instead of being a sharp corner, it's a nice smooth curve mm -hmm. so that you can take that curve a little bit faster. You know, we, we create these, what we call them sight triangles at every intersection. Mm -hmm. We make sure that no one plants a tree right on the corner because that'll block your view as you're trying to make that turn. I see. Um, we, we made our streets really nice and wide with wide shoulders and wide lanes so that mm -hmm. you can travel smoothly and fastly. Um, so... This is great, again, for, for moving a lot of vehicles quickly, but it doesn't work so great inside a city. That's, that's how we get all this traffic mm. violence, especially with pedestrians and people on bikes. And, yeah. Um, in order to reverse this, we simply, there are small interventions that we can do. For example, uh, if you stand on the street corner in like a European city or an Asian city, 
you'll see bollards. They're the big steel protective bollards. So if, if you're waiting to cross the street, um, if a car loses control, it'll crash into the bollard and not your own body. Huh. A ball? Is it literally just like a massive yeah, like steel ball or something? Or often, yeah. They they come in all shapes and sizes. Oh, okay. Um, usually they're just a big steel post. I oh, mean, you've okay. seen them around. Okay. Uh, yeah, even here I in the U.S., but mm -hmm. they're not very common along our streets because here in the U.S., that would be a hazard, right? If someone loses control of their vehicle and crashes into a bollard, we want that to be really forgiving to the person in the vehicle. We don't want them to come to an immediate stop and and get injured inside their vehicle. Uh -huh. Yeah. So here in the U.S., we design what are called breakaway posts. If you look, if you're standing at a street corner, look at the, the posts around you. You'll right notice special little bolts at the yeah. base. So when someone crashes into that, it breaks away. It dissipates some of their momentum, so their crash isn't so uh, violent mm -hmm. to them. But obviously the trade-off is that everyone outside of the vehicle is at much greater risk. Wow. And, and in some cities, they even prevent... Uh, trees being planted along the street for the same reason. We don't want that hazard. We call trees a hazard. Um, not not every city, thankfully. We have yeah. great street trees here in, in Springville. That's true. But yeah, that is it's, wild. Sorry, go on. Oh, just just so it's it's little things like that. We can have bollards on our corners to protect people who are trying to walk. Wow. Um, recently, there was a a girl killed here in Springville mm -hmm. um, on her way to. She was walking on her way to school. And if you talk to people in basically any community, they'll mm -hmm. talk about how crazy and chaotic the school hour drop-off and pickup times are for mm -hmm. students. Um, a lot of a lot of parents won't let their kids walk or bike to school because it's that's when it's most dangerous. Is when wow. kids are getting to and from school. So it creates this vicious cycle mm -hmm. where we we drive our kids because everyone else is driving their kids and we don't want them to face that danger. And therefore making it more dangerous. Yeah. But there are things that we could have we could do. And even even for this this gal who who died recently, there are things that we could do to make the places where students walk safer. Things like um, even even just things as simple as narrowing the travel lanes. Mm. So I talked about those highway engineers who created our interstate freeway system. They they knew that if you make nice wide high or freeway lanes, you can go really fast and and it's relatively safe for the people driving. Mm -hmm. uh, conversely, we know if you make really narrow lanes, it makes people uncomfortable. Mm. And when they feel uncomfortable, they will slow down. They're kind of forced to pay a little bit more attention because they don't want to scrape their car. They don't yeah. want to bump into something. Or hit anyone. <laughs> yes, exactly. So even something as simple as narrowing, you know, for a long time, kind of the quote-unquote standard travel mm -hmm. lane was about 12 feet wide. Um, now we know that about 10 feet wide is better. Mm. E even just narrowing it to 11 feet will make that much more of a difference. Mm. Um, for example, so here, the, just outside the, the windows here is Center Street. Mm -hmm. um, those travel lanes out there were 12 feet wide for a long time, and now they've been narrowed to... 10 feet gotcha. because for exactly that reason, it makes people slow down just a little bit more, pay a little bit more attention. Mm -hmm. And then you also get a little bit more room on your streets. So there on center street, narrowing the vehicle lanes meant now you can put in a bike lane mm. and create some, dedicate some space that's a little bit safer for people in other modes. Mm -hmm. um, so you can narrow lanes. You can do things like, uh, they're called bulb outs where you don't even take any space from the vehicle travel lane. 
you know, you have you have the vehicle traveling, mm -hmm. and then on either side you have the shoulders. Mm -hmm. You can bring the curb out all the way to the vehicle traveling, so it feels like at one point in the road it it kind of gets pinched a little bit. Interesting. And it but does it's not the, actually restricting. The, yeah, the width it's, of it's the still road. the same ten or twelve foot vehicle lane, uh -huh. but you have the either planter boxes or the curbs or just some some obstacle kind of on the shoulder, mm -hmm. and it, it that constriction causes drivers to slow down and pay a little more attention. And those kind of bulb outs can be especially useful at a place like a crosswalk mm -hmm. because now instead of crossing all the way from one curb to the other, now you're only crossing from one bulb out to the other. It shortens the, the, the walking distance for pedestrians. Gotcha. So there's, there's a lot of little tricks like this mm -hmm. that can be accomplished quite cheaply. Mm -hmm. um, e even in some places where advocates have been saying, hey, this is unsafe, hey, this is unsafe, and the, their city hasn't been responding. Mm -hmm. You get what's called tactical urbanism or guerrilla urbanism. Nice. Where um, without any permission, people will go out and they'll just plop down hay bales or, <laughs> or sandbags. Or yeah. I've even seen somebody like glued plungers on, on the edge <laughs> of travel lanes to create bulb outs or to, to you know, protect bike lanes from yeah. vehicle traffic. Awesome. In some ways, to obviously, it creates an actual safety... Um, a benefit for people walking and biking in those mm -hmm. places, but it also helps call out those inactive powers that be, mm -hmm. calls out their inaction. Which is super needed. I, I love that. Pretty much any type of direct action where people are just like, that's it. We're not waiting for somebody to say yes or no. We're doing it. Yeah. That's a, that's a beautiful thing to me. But I also like the idea of these more like, um, I guess like subliminal or very um, uh, subtle uh, changes that can just kind of make people feel like, oh, okay, I, I'm all right. They don't even notice, but they're just slowing down because of these like minor changes. Um, and actually when, uh, that, uh, that girl that died, when you were talking about that, I remember seeing, um, uh, I think it was you that posted it or you were just commenting on it, um, on the Springville community page. Mm -hmm. And, and you were mentioning some other, some ideas like this. And, um, I remember getting really frustrated because there was one guy who was like, nah, just put more cops up there. Yeah, I, was, yeah. I was wondering if you could speak to that because um, I think that is a common reaction for people. They're like, no, don't make it so that I like um, slow down unconsciously. Like just put like a cop there who's going to uh, almost put like a threatening presence. So I slow down. I'm, I'm curious what, what yeah, you kind of think about I'll, that. I'll admit, I think it's an odd reaction because, you know, e even if you're, so say you're, you're someone that's like very, very pro cop. Mm -hmm. Um, it's it's still an odd reaction to say no. We want we want more traffic enforcement at my kid's school crosswalk or mm -hmm. at, at this particular intersection or, or roadway where people are speeding, because I mean there are more important things that we want our law enforcement officers doing. Mm -hmm. uh, their police enforcement is a very expensive service that yeah. we pay for, and if we we don't want them to be wasting that time or those dollars yeah. doing things that we could solve in other more effective ways. Mm -hmm. Because traffic, like law enforcement, trying to keep people from speeding on your road, like it is, it's only effective when they're sitting right there. Yep. Or, okay, everyone knows that if you speed on that road, you'll get a ticket yeah. until they stop enforcing it. And then eventually everyone goes mm -hmm. back to speeding again. Yeah. Um, but then also, even if you're like, obviously, if, you, if you're, you know, maybe further on the left and you think that we should have fewer and fewer traffic enforcement. Uh, even sometimes you see people react against um, any changes to the roadway. I think there's just some kind of weird car-brained thing that people do mm -hmm. where it, we just don't like any changes to 
to the status quo of how we get around. It's hard for mm-hmm. people sometimes to imagine something new. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, using using police law enforcement to enforce things that we could just accomplish through design yeah. is obviously just a waste of resources. I agree. Yeah. But yeah, that's, I mean, I th- that was... Uh, that was something I was just really kind of wanted to really pinpoint is because like I feel like a lot of the the solutions or ideas that you present are more like systemic changes, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a huge theme of the kindness rebellion. It's this idea that we need to um, implement societal and systemic changes because that's where a lot of our problems lie. And yeah. I think that car culture is uh, very much involved in, in that kind of schema. Um, and it was, it was interesting just to see that argument from people. And I, I think you're right. There's that, that sort of weird reactionary defensiveness when it comes to car culture where people can just, for some reason, be like, no, don't change anything. No, don't change anything. Like just, uh, or if any changes are going to be made, put more cops or, um, oh, just, uh, maybe even get rid of more walkable space. Keep, keep separating pedestrians from the, the car spaces, um, even more. And, uh, and maybe, maybe that is the solution. But I think I, I like the idea of like maybe reorienting it to think what are the other benefits of um, kind of making a safer, um, less car centric society. Um, and so I guess that kind of uh, and there's one thing I forgot to mention in um, sort of my list of like the, the negative effects of car culture. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, arguably one of the biggest ones, which is the environment as well. Because um, one of the biggest reasons that car culture, honestly, in my opinion, needs to be diminished is because fossil fuels are emitting too many uh, greenhouse gases and causing Mm -hmm. global warming, Um, as well as just, uh, I think another thing that people really don't think about very often is just the amount of like literal physical waste that a car creates. Like how often are we changing out tires and where are these tires going? Um, how about all the times that we're changing fluids, other um, little bits and tiny pieces of parts on the car? Um, I was wondering if we could kind of shift towards that to kind of, um, I guess, uh, what is your perspective? What is your focus on on how cars affect the environment? And um, how do you kind of go about explaining that to people who are may, probably otherwise maybe that reactive kind of defensive uh, mindset um, when it comes to uh, car culture? I think when it comes to cars impact on the environment and our our world it's you can imagine the kind of an iceberg where the, like the the tip of the iceberg that we can see is is you know the the smog coming out of the tailpipe mm-hmm. and so sometimes people think like well electric cars that's going to fix it right yeah. but there's so many other things like you mentioned the tires like an electric car is a much heavier uh, and so it requires bigger tires and it burns through those tires a lot faster and in fact we know now that most of the air pollution from cars is is as much brake dust and tire particulates as it wow. is tailpipe exhaust. Holy cow. Yeah. Um, and th- so there's a lot of things on the iceberg that are underneath that. Like, for example, y- we have to store cars. Cars take up so much space, mm. especially our U.S. cars that are much bigger than our... Uh, our global counterparts. Yeah. Um, so we have to pave parking lots all over the place, mm-hmm. and that creates kind of an urban heat island effect, and mm. it creates really bad runoff problems in a lot of cities. Um, it means that there's just like less greenery and environment, and it means that anytime you build a new building, you're you're usually taking up more space for the parking lot than you are for the building itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it becomes this. It also so cars they. I'm, how to 
say this diplomatically. <laughs> cars enable this this sprawling development style that we mm. see so much of in the U.S. Really low density. I have nothing against single family homes, but it's often these kind of quarter acre kingdoms of lawn that just have to be mowed every week that hardly get used. Mm-hmm. Um, and cars kind of promote this. They make it possible mm-hmm. in a way that it wouldn't otherwise be fiscally sustainable mm-hmm. or, or even like without your car, how could you live clear out on the edge of, of uh, yeah, all the, the whole built city? Yeah. So it, the way that cars gobble space mm. in the in the storage in the induced demand sprawl, uh, I think is maybe the most I don't know vicious of of the ways that they destroy our environment. Yeah, I really like how you how you use the the, the iceberg metaphor because you're right. Like I think most people are just like, oh, it's the gas and the fossil fuels, so we just need to switch to electric cars. Um, and then you know there's a. a a podcast with a moneyless society where they were talking about um, with Simon Michaud that uh, the green transition is not possible in this economy because of this idea of like, Hey, let's re- replace all of our cars with electric cars. We don't even have enough raw materials to do that. Yeah. Like it's we, true. like we would literally have to extract from another planet in order to make that happen. Yeah. Um, and, and then I didn't know about the, like the particulates and all the other things from like the tires and, uh, and other pieces of the car that are breaking off and, uh, it's just it's it's crazy, and um, and I guess I'll, I'll kind of ask again the 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 second part of that question, like how how have you had have you had to communicate that to people um, who are sort of mm, I, I don't know if I want to say ignorant, but sort of like tr- actively trying to push off the problems of car culture, especially um, in terms of the environment. Have you had to kind of discuss these things with people, um, or you know, I'm assuming eventually you will. Um, mm-hmm. h- how do you tend to go about those conversations? How do you tend to talk to people about this? Um, it's, it's a little tricky because I think I think people do care. Sometimes they just don't know like how to channel that their their care. Mm. You know, like when someone buys an electric car, mm-hmm. obviously it's because they they feel like they want to be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not against electric cars. If you like, if you're buying a new car, definitely buy electric if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think. People care. Sometimes they lack the vocabulary. Sometimes they lack a full understanding of some of the problems that come with these different things. Um, I this kind of brings us back to what we were saying before, where people think that here in the U.S., our our whole cities are built around cars, and you can't get around without a car. Mm. Uh, most trips, the majority of trips that people make are are less than three miles. And a good percentage of those trips are just, you know, to the post office, to the grocery store, to drop mm-hmm. the kids off at school. They're very, very short trips that are that could easily be walked or biked. Mm-hmm. So when I talk to people about some of these solutions, it's not, like I said before, it's not an all or nothing thing. I recommend that people try getting out of their car. Try, like... If you if you commute every single day to this place that's five miles away, have you ever tried biking mm-hmm. on your way to work? Have you ever tried riding uh, the bus? Mm-hmm. Um, even if you only do that once a month, that's that's still more than zero. That's still yeah. a victory. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes, what people discover when they they make the effort to replace a few car trips here and there, it sort of radicalizes again them mm-hmm. against the car-centric way that our societies are yeah. built. You know, you'll often hear people complain, well, I tried the bus, but it took me twice as long. 
And it's like, well, that's because we subsidize your car commutes and we, we make it really, really difficult for the transit agency mm-hmm. to run effective service because mm. we prioritize personal automobiles. Yeah. Um, or, well, I'd love to take my kids to school on a bike, but it's so dangerous. Well, like, it's, it, some at some point we're going to have to break that vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. So even if people can only do it every now and again, um, that's that's the, the how we how we break the cycle is getting people to to try mm-hmm. a little bit at a time. I like that. It it is a, a really sad and kind of kind of frustrating that the that that vicious cycle at acts as a feedback loop to kind of keep justifying like see this is why we don't want public transit this is why mm-hmm. we don't want buses and stuff like that because it's it's not as efficient but um i think in the end what needs to happen is we need uh, like you said people to try a little bit more just to kind of step outside and see hey what's the difference here um and then we can have new feedback loops that build those systems back up um and that kind of uh, and i'm glad you brought that up because it, it does bring me to kind of the next uh, the next couple things that I want to talk about, which is public transit, um, which could be, you know, in a lot of other countries and um, and even some cities in the U.S. Uh, is an alternative to this car-centric culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you kind of mentioned, a lot of people are like, eh, it takes too long. Like I, I've uh, I had a buddy who he drove to work every day. It was only 20 minutes. Right. Um, one time he needed to take the bus and it took him an hour and a half. And he's like, I'm never doing that again. It was triple the time. It was like super frustrating and it was just not working. And when we were kind of talking about it, it was like, well, yeah, the, the reason it's frustrating and not working is because nobody's using it. And then we're seeing it's not working. And so they're justifying gutting its funding and yeah. making it worse. That vicious um, cycle. Exactly. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on some of the ways that we can um, help promote public transit, um, maybe build it back up. What are some of the some of the biggest um, maybe challenges that we need to overcome in trying to uh, rebuild public transit infrastructure? Um, you know, here in Utah, it's it's a very red state, and mm-hmm. oftentimes, kind of people think that like I don't know why for some reason things like public transit become claimed by you know one side or the other, but yeah. sometimes people think that. Republicans are anti-transit, um, but we're, we're pretty fortunate to have a great transit agency here on the Wasatch Front, the Utah mm. Transit Authority. Um, recently, you may have read that our governor proposed a year-long zero zero fare transit study. Like, let's try it out for a full year and kind of see what happens. I did not know about that. Yeah, That's awesome. It, it would have been fantastic. Unfortunately, oh. there were a few legislators who say, well, transit shouldn't be free, you know, like you don't get anything for free. You should pay for what you use, which is a funny thing to say in a state where no one pays a toll to drive their car. Yeah. Um, we, we kind of take the subsidy that we give to cars, this huge, enormous subsidy in state and personal funds every mm-hmm. single year. We take that for granted. We, don't, we see it as just a given. And then we act like, you know, the, our transit authorities ought to, you know, the, the, every bus ought to earn its keep, basically. What? It's a very strange thing in a society where our one of our collective state symbols is the beehive. All of us working together for the common good, for the good of the hive and each yeah. other. Um, something like transit is is that principle embodied. Yeah, where we all chip in a little bit of our sales tax dollars in order to create this this system that we can all ride and that will get us all to work. And and we all ride in the same vehicle together, which. Uh, you know, some somebody like Elon Musk hates that idea, but 
Um, it's one of my favorite things about transit mm-hmm. is you hop on the bus and you're like, oh, hey, that's my good friend Spencer on his yeah. way to work. Or, or um, you you know, chat with the bus driver that you've never chatted with before. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, the other, the other day I saw some, some kid was just kind of having a rough time on the bus and you start a conversation with them and kind of connect as human beings. Mm. Um, so the... The the differential between commuting in your car, like you said, is twenty minutes versus for your 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 buddy's transit commute was mm-hmm. like an hour and a half. Yeah, um, those are a choice that we make. Obviously, mm-hmm. um, right now the Utah Department of Transportation is talking about expanding I fifteen yet again north of Salt Lake. Just one more lane, bro. Yeah, yeah, just one more lane will fix it. We just keep expanding <laughs> it. Someday we'll solve traffic. Um, but we just year after year after year after year, we've poured money into this hole trying to solve traffic congestion. And it, I mean, it, it sort of works in the sense that like, yeah, we make it so that you can have 20 minute commutes for a lot of people. Um, but it mean it, it comes at the cost of everything that we could have invested that money mm-hmm. in. So for the, for the price of the I-15 the expansion that they're talking about, we could double track front runner and have front-runner trains coming every 10 or 15 minutes. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. That would change everything. We could have, you know, light rail down here in Utah County, just like they have up in Salt Lake County. We could have all the buses come twice as more frequently. We could have, like, big, grand, beautiful stations where you can pop into the cafe, get some breakfast on your way to work, you know, like, buy a little, buy your umbrella because it's raining that day. Like, we could have, we can have nice things. That would be the same cost as, as expanding the highway one more lane, they said? I don't remember how many lanes they're expanding it to, oh, okay. like 15 or something. I don't remember. Okay. It's, but that same But cost. it's an obscene amount. Yeah, oh it's, it's X number of billions of dollars. And, you know, we could have, I don't know if you've heard of the Rio Grande plan up in Salt Lake where they'll, like, bury some of the train tracks running through the city and move it over to the historic train station. Like, we could uh-huh. have some of these big grand ideas that most of the time we look at these ideas and go, well, that's, that's pie in the sky expensive. We mm-hmm. couldn't have that. Double track front runner that runs from... Payson to Brigham City, like oh, that sounds like a dream. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> so we we demand of our leaders and legislators that they solve this traffic problem for us. We're mm. always even here in Springville, you know, people get frustrated, understandably, when they're coming home from work and it's a crazy traffic jam and they wait at four different lights and it takes them thirty minutes to get home. Mm-hmm. Um, we we cannot keep trying to solve that problem uh and like if we can't eat our cake and have it too mm-hmm. I, like the the choice of a long transit commute versus a short vehicle commute is a choice that we've continually made and eventually mm-hmm. we are going to have to really choose what are our priorities yeah. is, is is the common good our priority or as individual subsidies um and i'll there is back in the 70s i think there was a guy named Ivan Illich. He wrote a, he wrote a, he kind of did this like study back of the envelope uh, calculation mm-hmm. where he calculated the speed at which we travel. And if you consider all of the time that you spend working to pay for gas, to pay for tires, to pay for insurance, all of that time um, to pay for your car and, and to pay for the taxes that mm-hmm. pay for the roads, um, if you calculate, if you add that time to your, 
your, your daily commute time, then you're really only moving like four or five miles per hour. Yeah. Wow. And and so that was he was kind of a thinker that talked about like cars kind of create this this giant problem for everybody mm-hmm. and solve it for only a few people who have the money. Mm. And he talks a lot about how like those who have the money, who have the means, who have the wealth, they can afford to travel faster than everyone else at the expense of everyone else. Mm. So when we talk about buses being a lot slower, oftentimes it's because they're stuck in traffic created by <laughs> all of the personal automobiles. Yeah. You may, you may, a lot of people know that once upon a time we had great streetcars running up and down almost every street, mm-hmm. you know, in any medium size or large city. Um, the reason that sometimes people say, oh, it was a conspiracy, you know, GM bought up all the streetcars and purposely killed them to make people buy cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a little bit true, but mostly it's not. It's really just that like we made it really easy for people with money to buy cars and then they created traffic jams mm-hmm. and now these street running trains could no longer get through the streets on time. And they're like, well, everyone's using cars, so let's prioritize car infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, it, it became this vicious cycle that we're now trapped in. Um, but yeah, it's... Like I said, when when you consider all of the time that you're you're spending on your vehicle, mm. you're not actually getting to work that much faster because so yeah. much of the money you make at work goes to that twenty minute commute. Yeah, that's a that's an important concept to think about. Like, um, I I was really surprised when I would talk to some coworkers um, about like how they're like, yeah, it's just my insurance is getting so expensive, gas is getting so expensive. I've got to, I'm still paying off my car. Oh, and then something broke down because your car is always freaking breaking down. Um, and I was just like, like we don't realize just how much of a wasteful expense a car is. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's weird because like you know, like you said, we our state has sort of like demonized public transit, but there's a lot of like benefits to it that we don't understand. Um, I think even the social aspect that you're referring to is a huge piece. Like even if people aren't very extroverted as uh, you are, and I consider myself to be as well, mm-hmm. um, I think there is a very profound effect um, that comes from being in a space that is shared by everybody and being just just around other people instead of isolated in that little submarine that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, because we start like, it, you know, car culture sort of um, pushes this uh, individualism and this sort of like um, antisocial uh, atmosphere. And I think that by removing that, we kind of have this chance to kind of rethink everything. And, uh, man, hearing that, like all of the different things that we could have done with, uh, with like similar funds for just for expanding the highway just kind of mm-hmm. breaks my heart because like there's so many other big benefits that would come than just having better public transit infrastructure. Um, and uh, there was another point I was going to make with that, but I think I lost it. And, I, I, I'm yeah. going to jump into, yeah, you don't have to be an, an extrovert to love riding bikes mm-hmm. or riding on the bus. My wife is very much an introvert. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she likes popping in music and, uh, and, and just hopping on the bus and kind of, she, she really gets stressed by driving a car. Mm-hmm. It just adds a lot of anxiety to her life that she doesn't want. And so being able to just sit on the bus and daydream, you put headphones on mm-hmm. so that no one bothers you. Yes. It works just as well for an introvert as it does for yes, an extrovert. Thank you. That is exactly what I was going to talk about. Because um, another thing is it, my brother, um, well, he used to live up in Kaysville. And when he was up there, he was able to take the front runner to his work. Mm-hmm. He loved it. Absolutely loved it. Because he didn't have to worry about traffic. He didn't have to worry about the anxiety of driving. And most importantly, um, if he wanted to work, he could. 
while he was yeah. on the bus or while he was on the front runner, he was able to kind of get caught up on some stuff. And then uh, on his way home, he would write and just like do some things to like kind of help stimulate himself instead of having to focus on a very dangerous environment. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, you know, I uh, one thing that I talk about with my friend a lot is just like just cars are so dangerous. Like, why do we have almost everyone in our society operating such dangerous, heavy machinery um, when we know that it's easy for people to get distracted, we have all these billboards and signs like, hey, don't look at your phone, don't use your phone while driving, yeah. things like that. And it's like if we just had really robust public transit infrastructure, people wouldn't need to like worry about that. They could you know, use that time in transit however they want instead of hyperfixating on the road. Right, yeah. I've heard it compared sometimes. Like, do, you, do we really want everyone to have to do something as dangerous as like walk around with a loaded gun? <laughs> just to get a gallon of milk for yeah. the family. Um, I love that. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a good analogy because, like, no matter how responsible you are as a gun owner or a car driver, like, mm-hmm. there is always that danger that you're going to injure yourself or you're going mm-hmm. to injure somebody else. Um, it would be much better. People, we sometimes talk about the... Um, if you're in... You work in a factory, say, right, mm-hmm. or a lumber mill or whatever there's this kind of um, hierarchy of safety controls. Mm. Um, the very, very last thing on that hierarchy is personal protective gear, like like wearing a helmet or wearing safety glasses in a lumber mill. Like all of the steps before that are things like removing the hazard or putting guards around the hazard. Uh. So like removing vehicles where we don't need to have people driving mm-hmm. or, you know, controlling the hazard, like, putting up bollards where people are going to be standing and at risk of being hit by the hazard. Mm-hmm. So there's there's just a lot of safety steps that we can take. It, it's weird how how we know that with um, with those kind of manufacturing jobs and mm-hmm. things like that. But then there's just this blind spot when it comes to car culture and we, we like just don't even see all of those different hazards that are out in the open that are quite accessible that we just kind of take for granted and think are yeah. necessary, right? Um, and it was interesting earlier when you kind of brought up the, uh, this might be a little bit of a tangent, but earlier when you brought up the GM thing, cause I'd, I'd heard a similar thing. It wasn't really phrased to me as like a, as like a conspiracy. It wasn't like, oh, they did this just to make a bu- bunch of money. But at the same time, it's like, what else was GM for to, to make a bunch of money? Right. Right. And to produce automobiles. And so from what I understood and like, please correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong about any of this, from what I understood, it was, uh, like there was, um, grants and contracts for building public infrastructure and apparently like GM won those contracts to build public infrastructure and then actively destroyed all of the public transit to implement car culture and and it was less about like haha we're devious and we want to commit evil but it was like no like we're trying to market cars to people Mm -hmm. and so people are going to want to buy cars more and when people have more cars we need more infrastructure to handle those cars is is that accurate or is that i mean yes and no so like Mm -hmm. sometimes people think that that's the whole story really is like Mm -hmm. we had great trains gm won the contract to like build or maintain those trains they replaced them with their diesel buses and Mm -hmm. then eventually just got rid of the buses and replaced them with cars it's kind of the general narrative sometimes yes, people have. that's exactly what I've heard. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, that did sort of happen in some cities. Mm-hmm. But the the larger story is just that um, we were in kind of the 1920s is when we started, states started creating highway departments. We started paving roadways. 
we started, like cars became suddenly much more affordable mm -hmm. um, in the 20s, 30s, and especially after World War II, um, when we suddenly were, everyone was flush with cash and the country mm. was flush with cash and we almost didn't even know where to spend it all. So it was this gradual process of, you know, obviously private companies who were trying to cash in on, on some of these things, mm -hmm. but also just kind of... Um, natural market forces and, and government forces subsidizing this newfangled mm -hmm. contraption that we thought was going to revolutionize yeah. the world. And it did revolutionize the world, yeah. but maybe not in the ways that we hoped. Yes. So you can often find photos from kind of the 20s and 30s where you see there's a streetcar. It's it's not bought by GM, and GM isn't purposely ha-ha-ha nefariously yeah. <laughs> like killing the streetcar, but the streetcar is stuck behind some parked Model T mm -hmm. and it can't move because some idiot parked his car there. Yeah. Or or that's just a big giant before the streetcar could run on time, now uh it's now it's, it's trapped late. in traffic. Mm -hmm. And 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 so when it becomes less convenient to ride the streetcar because all the people with idiots with their cars make it late, well I may as well just get my own car. Mm. And then I don't have to depend on this unreliable streetcar. Yeah. And it was right around the time when cities and states were starting to give more and more money to to roads and highways and so mm -hmm. there's less and less money for transit it's just like it's this whole big giant there, there were just a million little levers that were being pulled all over the place mm -hmm. and even now so if you think about the way we fund like here here either on a statewide level we fund you know highway expansions like i-15 or on a city level the way we fund like our neighborhood streets and our you know, collector roads and arterial roads. We have all mm -hmm. these different designations and classifications. We've really streamlined how we get dollars to those projects. Mm. You know, you want you want a new road or you need to repave a road here in Springville. Like we know exactly where those dollars are coming from. Gotcha. Every year we've earmarked X number of millions for it. Mm. Um, but if you want to expand, you know, like say we want better frequency on on the bus that runs through town. Well, we have to figure out like... Do we have a bond for that? Do we increase oh. sales tax? And there, there's all these little finicky, you know, we have to like go to public hearings and, mm. and people come. It's, it's kind of we've over the last few centuries pulling all those levers. Um, we've really kind of made roads and highway funding automatic. Mm -hmm. And we've made uh, transit and walking and biking um kind of not the norm so anytime it happens it has to go this whole like yeah public hearing process and uh, it's very silly I, I wonder if that's why people can think it's like so expensive it's just because it's like oh where are we going to get the money from and, and it's not like oh let's let's utilize the funds that are earmarked for normal traffic because i i think that maybe there's and you know i'm just hearing about this so i'm totally speculating but mm -hmm. like to me it sounds like there's there's sort of no longer this like battle between like okay public transit and and the you know car infrastructure like it's not trying to push and pull on those funding it almost feels like we've defaulted to car culture yes and then if you want more public transit funding and infrastructure you're gonna have to magically come up with it some other way yeah and i'm i'm hopeful i'm optimistic that things are moving in a better direction for example this last legislative session they passed a bill that like Earmarks, I think, like forty million dollars a year for active transportation, mm. um, and so there are little things like that where year after year, if we keep pulling those levers, then we can maybe reverse things. Mm. Um, 
the, it also is important to note before I was talking about how here in the U.S. we destroyed our cities mm -hmm. to make room for cars. In other countries, they were on the same trajectory as we were. Mm -hmm. Places like the Netherlands now, we think of it as kind of this biking utopia, mm -hmm. right? Um, in the 60s and 70s, uh, Netherlands, the, the places like the Netherlands, you know, they, they'd been bombed out during World War II. They mm -hmm. were rebuilding, and so they had this opportunity to build in the very car-centric way. You know, there's a lot of money mm -hmm. coming from the U.S. to rebuild Europe, and a lot of that money was aimed at highways and parking mm -hmm. lots and that kind of infrastructure. Uh, so they were, they were doing the same things we were, kind of tearing down old historic homes to widen roads, etc., um, and then the, the 1970s oil crisis hit and uh, they had to, they, they did, there was a few things. Obviously, it kind of forced them to rethink what was going on, but also they just had to take practical measures like, okay, we just don't have enough oil to drive all the time. Mm. So on Sundays, no one's allowed to drive. Mm. And that what that meant was that on Sundays, suddenly the streets were open for people mm. like they hadn't been for a couple decades. So now people could get out and walk and ride their bikes and of course, buses were were still running, trains were still running, mm -hmm. um, and it kind of reminded people of what they were starting to lose, and uh, obviously, because they were on the same trajectory as us, where they were investing more and more and more in cars, they were seeing the same rise in pedestrian and bicyclist fatalities, mm. and so then there was a social movement stalled called Stop the Kindermord, like Stop the Child Murder, Wow! and you can find these photos of um, people like laying out, they, they called them die-in protests where they would lay across the, the highways with their own bodies to stop wow. traffic. And um, so there's this really cool collective action led by like really powerful women, moms, parents who just wanted to keep their kids safe. Wow. Um, so obviously there, there are levers that we can pull at like in state legislatures and in city hall, but there's also just direct action that you can take. Like you can gather your neighbors and really start making your voice heard. Mm. Um, you, obviously, you'll face pushback. They definitely, like you can also, in, in those same videos and photos of people, uh, these protests, there's, there's fist fights, there's cops mm. trying, you know, arresting people and beating people up. But mm -hmm. the important thing is that the people who, who literally put their bodies on the line, they created a new way of life. Well, not really a new way of life. They, they, got they the preserve. Netherlands to yeah. preserve that way of life yeah. where there's just a lot more social connection and, uh, you know, people's money doesn't go to cars and car infrastructure. It mm. can just go to a high quality of living. Mm. And um, th we, we can do the same thing here. We can work together to create a little bit by bit. We can, we can change, reverse mm. the tide. I love that. that it, and uh, I appreciate you painting that more um, holistic and cohesive picture of kind of that GM history and everything like that, because obviously it's going to be more complicated. And I think um, a major factor of that, like, change as well is this sort of um, idea that, like, having a car is a type of freedom. And it was, so, I think that was a huge, a huge piece that was kind of just motivating people to be like, yeah, let's keep investing in this, let's keep investing in this, pull those levers, like you said. Um, but I am happy to hear that there are, ways to switch levers maybe back or maybe mm -hmm. um, towards something that we think can be better for everybody. And uh, and maybe this is a little late in the podcast. This is where I'll kind of bring up that you've uh, recently announced that you'll be running for city council here in Springville. I am, yes. And um, I'm curious uh, what, kinds of, what kinds of levers are you going to be trying to pull 
um, in this in this sphere? What kinds of um, changes do you want to maybe uh, make or um, start pushing people in the direction and kind of opening up people's minds and ideas to uh, or opening up their thoughts to these kinds of ideas um, so that we can start kind of moving the needle in in a, in a safer, more holistic, and honestly, I think, sustainable way. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned cars kind of being seen as a type of freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I often see, you, you know, obviously they are like a fun road trip or getting up into the canyons, like mm-hmm. that they are a freedom in that sense. But I often see the ways we've created a lot of unfreedom mm-hmm. here just in, in the city. You know, most or a, a lot of a big portion of the, the city can't actually drive. You know, the kids until the age of 16 can't drive. Elderly people can't drive, certainly not safely if they mm-hmm. have you know, bad eyesight or bad reflexes. Mm-hmm. Um, people with health problems can't drive. People who just simply can't afford cars can't drive. Yeah. So there's, there's a huge segment of our population um, that needs better non-car infrastructure. Mm. But then also even the people who do drive, you know, say you need your car for your commute or you need your car to visit your family on, on a Sunday or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, you, there's still most of your trips you know, dropping the kids off at school or picking up groceries at Reem's grocery store. Um, those can be taken without your car. And sometimes that is a choice that people want to make, but feel that they can't make mm-hmm. because we've, we've rearranged our priorities to make high speed car movement, the pr- top priority over safety. So um, I think safety on our roadways is for me going to be a major thing. It's something that I hear people talking about all the time. Mm. People who want their kids to be able to get to and from school, people who want to be able to, you know, they got a new e-bike, they really love it, they want to have fun with it, mm-hmm. but they don't feel like there's anywhere safe to ride. Mm. So I, we can create safer, safer sidewalks, safer bike lanes, like I mentioned earlier, through very small changes like bulb outs, um, you know, maybe raised crosswalks here and there. Mm-hmm. That's where that's it. It functions sort of like a speed bump where it forces someone to slow down. It's yeah. like the crosswalk goes up. It places a pedestrian kind of more front and center for mm-hmm. the, the person driving. So it's like a win-win for everybody because cars can keep moving. You don't have to don't limit have to the stop. number of yeah. car traffic. Mm-hmm. And it, like I have mentioned a few times, it's not an all or nothing thing. Um, we, can, we can simply just... I think if you had people list off their priorities... Uh, like, what do you want? What are your priorities for the public realm? I think safety is probably going to be at the top of everyone's list. Mm-hmm. But the way we've built our streets, safety is not at the top. It's car movement at speed. Mm. So I think we can still move cars at a good speed um, and place a higher priority on safety. Gotcha. Um, I don't know if that fully answers your question on like some of the, the levers in it. In fact, I'll, I'll continue when we place less of a priority on the movement of cars at speed and also sometimes a less, this is really contentious sometimes, but less of a priority on the storage of cars off street. Mm -hmm. You know, we have, we have this public realm, basically everything between the buildings, the, between the curbs, not even the curbs. We have the public realm that is the street, right? The sidewalk, the trees, the curb, the pavement. We give all of it right now to, movement of cars for the most part mm-hmm. or sometimes the storage of cars in front of your own house yeah private property stored on on pu- the public right-of-way mm-hmm. um if we are more willing to like i said this is contentious 
but let more people park in that that right of way mm-hmm. without kind of having a freak out over it, then that means that we can use more of the space that we're de- whenever we're developing, you know, a new business mm. or new homes, we don't have to give so much space over to parking. I see. But the average parking stall costs, you know, at least like eight or ten thousand dollars for just a surface parking stall. Wow. Yeah. So it's a, it's an enormous cost, and we require any new building to provide a certain amount of parking. Wow. So it's this this huge subsidy that we give to car culture and that we mandate to any, you know, say you're a mom and pop, you want to build a little a little bungalow in your backyard for your grandkid who's going to college. You want him to have a place to live and mm-hmm. maybe start a family even. Yeah. Well, you're required to put a certain amount of parking in. Wow. And that raises the cost of that to the point where suddenly you can't actually afford to build it anymore. Wow. Um, or the same thing if you're starting a new business, you, you may notice here on Main Street, we have a lot of, they're called like kind of the missing teeth of urbanism, places mm-hmm. where there used to be a beautiful historic building, but it's been torn down to become a parking lot. Mm-hmm. Well, now if we wanted to build a, a beautiful building there again and have it be a business, maybe some cute little homes on the top, business on the bottom, now we require a certain amount of parking for that building. And there's there's literally not enough space for it, but it also just makes it very hard financially to make that even happen. Mm. And so so these parking mandates are kind of destroying the dynamism of our city. Wow. And they're especially squeezing out the, the little developers, the mom and pop business owners, because the only people who can afford the high cost of the free parking that they're mandated to create it, are the large developers. Wow. So what you see often, people obviously sometimes, I mean, I don't love the the way we build apartments nowadays, kind of mm-hmm. just kind of this the sameness, the five stories over yeah. parking structure, high density. high density. Yeah, there's a reason people don't love it. It feels a lot really quite soulless. Yeah. Um, but that's the only thing we're getting nowadays because the only people who can afford to play this high free parking game, this high cost development game, mm-hmm. are the large fish mm. who have enough money to fight through all the red tape, who have enough money to put the upfront cost into these expensive parking structures mm-hmm. and who have the money to buy huge chunks of land or to piece by piece buy smaller parcels and then consolidate it into one big parcel and mm-hmm. build a big mega apartment project. So these are the problems that I think our city is facing, and and really every city is facing. It's mm-hmm. part of why we have a housing crisis because we used to have a lot of kind of um, what's called missing middle development developers, where like someone might build a cute little duplex that looks just like all the other houses in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. but it's a duplex. It's two homes instead of one, or maybe even a sixplex. Um, that kind of development isn't happening anymore. Mm-hmm. We're just getting, you know, large townhome projects or big, tall apartment projects. Yeah. And a lot of it is because of the car-centric way we've designed this this unfreedom of movement, this unfreedom of development, this unfreedom of what you can do with your own property. Mm-hmm. So I know that sometimes when you start on this subject, it feels quite radical to people. But in my mind, it's actually a very, in some ways, very conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, to kind of go back to these original principles that created the small town city that we love mm-hmm. today. Yeah, I think that's a good way to kind of phrase it to people. And I and I think it's really important, especially 
um, to call out those unfreedoms that you're talking about. Because I mean, the, usually when I talk to people about car culture and like my, my my problems, my issues with it, it's always like, yeah, but I like I like the freedom of my car. I like that I can go wherever I want. It's like, can you go wherever you want, or is it more like you are confined to these? I guess, in my opinion, it's sort of this this type of confinement and then getting stuck in traffic and and still dealing with, like, way too much parking all the time, mm-hmm. like, never being able to even find a parking space. You know, you hear about, like, terrible things, like, in uh, in Canada where a parking spot costs more per hour than they're paying their minimum wage. You know, there's, yeah. there's just these weird things that we've allowed to be okay because of car culture. Um, and I think that there's, there's a lot of room to um, sort of, not have to take a hard line, kind of like what you're saying, where, mm-hmm. where, you know, it's not just, it's not one or the other. Like we can still kind of, we can still embody principles of like safety um, and then still make sure that people are able to meet their commutes, you know, and people are still able to get to work and people are still able to, you know, function. But I like the idea of focusing, like actually looking at what's stopping people from, you know, achieving maybe safety or even just like a, a reliable commute and instead of saying, let's add one more lane, we sort of focus on what's the larger picture here? What are some lever- levers that we can start turning um, to start kind of pointing us in a more yeah. like, socially acceptable direction? I yeah, because, I mean, we have a finite amount of resources, and that's not just money. Like, our, our street space is a resource, and mm-hmm. we have to decide how we want to allocate that. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying we need to, like, you know, make it so that it's hard for people to own cars or, like, take away people's parking. But right now... We're using the, the the cudgel of government to force people to build more parking than they would otherwise mm-hmm. choose to build for their their you know bungalow in the backyard yeah. or for the the you know townhomes that they're building. Yeah, um, we're we're mandating these things. Yeah, and I think if we kind of let the free market uh, decide these things, then we'll arrive at a more healthy, fiscally sustainable place. And, and of course, that will get us to a more environmentally and socially sustainable place. Mm. I, uh, I, I feel a little bit uh, skeptical about the free market <laughs> ending up with that just because the free market really prioritizes, uh, the, I guess, the profitability of the car culture, in my opinion. That's fair, yeah. Yeah, but, but I think you're right in terms of, like, it's interesting how, um, like, the government is sort of, like, still forcing us into this, this car culture, like, through that mandate of parking. And then I think just by... By subsidizing um, car infrastructure and making, um, you know, public transit less reliable or less efficient, it sort of ends up forcing people to be like, well, if I can't get a car, then I can't get a job to go to work. You know, mm-hmm. how many people, um, or I've, there's so many interviews that I've been in or have even conducted where one of the primary things that I'm supposed to ask is, uh, or be asked is, do you have reliable transportation? And really what they mean by that is, do you do have, you have a car? car? Yep. Yeah. And uh, because without it, it's, it's easy to sort of be like, well, now you're unreliable. And so, and, and I totally, I I see what you're saying where it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to start like taking away car, like cars or taking away parking space. Um, I, I guess I would be on a little little bit of the opposite of that where I'm like, yeah, I do. Because I feel like um, we're currently forcing people to get a car Mm -hmm. and we're uh, forcing people to be complicit in car culture. And I'd rather us get to a point where it is less convenient to use a car than it is to uh, use public transit. And and I think that's a long road, though, and there's a lot of people that are not going to be okay yeah. with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you see in places like the Netherlands, or for maybe a more recent example is Paris, mm-hmm. um, where 
you know, maybe their first step was every every month on a Sunday, then these particular roads would be closed to cars, but open for people. Mm-hmm. And then that became every single Sunday. And mm. then it became, okay, we're just going to permanently close this car to, mm. or this road to cars, and it's going to be a people place. Mm-hmm. Um I think I think incrementally we can decide step by step what kind of like city we want to build. So when mm-hmm. I say like let's start by kind of taking the the cudgel of of big government out of out of parking mandates mm-hmm. and let kind of the free market decide. Well, like I think that's maybe a first step. Mm-hmm. And then maybe later if we decide that what we want is is we're moving in a good direction, we feel like that's a good direction. Maybe what we'll decide is that now we'll place. Um, parking maximums maybe mm-hmm. uh, and that's what some places like the Netherlands and Paris are, are have been doing is they've they've reached a point now where uh, they can everyone can kind of see the benefits of public transportation and walking and cycling and and just a little bit more you know you think of like Amsterdam it's not like they have lots of tall skyscrapers you mm-hmm. know so it's not some big urban canyon kind of place it's quite lovely and quaint people pay mm-hmm. thousands of dollars to go there and visit. Yeah. Um, so when we, when I talk about density, it's, it's things like that, that I mean, mm-hmm. but if we, if we can move ourselves in that direction, then places like the Netherlands with that kind of density, they're now, um, removing on street parking. Mm. So like, I don't know, maybe Springville gets to that point at some, but that's obviously not the first step yeah. at all. And I think what I really like about what you said is, um, is by taking just kind of those initial steps, um, probably based on like a need. Like I really like hearing about how the Netherlands, you know, it was during the oil crisis that they were like, okay, we're just going to have Sundays where nobody drives. Mm-hmm. That That's something that everyone can understand. They're like, oh yeah, like we literally don't have oil. Like we can't drive. So yeah. that's a, that's an easy solution to start with. It's like, okay, cool. That's, that's fine. We'll, we get that. And I think what I love about that too is that if you start implementing something like that, everyone begins trying it. They begin saying like, wow, this is interesting. And then, you know, we kind of like feel around, see the public consensus, like, how do you feel about these car-free Sundays? And it's like, actually, I love it. Actually, I love that I get mm-hmm. to just walk around. Um, I like the the fact that I don't have to worry about cars when I'm just like out and enjoying the the scenery, the environment, and, and you know my neighbors. And then looking to make more steps without just being like, that's it, a blanket ban on cars. It's more like, well, let, like, what are some other subtle changes that we can make to help ele- like build back that feeling? Yeah, I think that's going to create the new feedback loops that yeah. we're looking for. Well, and I, I mentioned Paris, and that's that's they were kind of already moving that direction toward mm-hmm. less driving and more transit and and biking and that kind of thing, and then the pandemic hit, mm-hmm. and it kind of forced them to to reevaluate where they were. What they decided to do is just push really hard. They they laid out kind of almost overnight a network across the city of car free streets or wow. or or high comfort bike lanes. Mm. And now Paris is almost as much of a biking mecca as a place like like Amsterdam and Copenhagen. That's awesome. Um, and it's because they they were already taking those initial steps, and then they had some bold leaders who decided like, no, we're gonna we're going to take this this leap, and and now they've because they've taken that leap, it's created. I, I've heard her from people who recently went to Paris that mm-hmm. it feels like night and day from what they remember. Wow. Just a lot less traffic, a lot less stress a lot more mm-hmm. bird song I love so that. I, I mean i don't know if springville will someday become the biking mecca that paris or the netherlands is but um but i would love to take those initial steps so that at least people could let their kids get to school safely mm. without fear of being killed i love that i think that that can be a priority that everyone can get behind 
Awesome. Well, we're coming to the end of this podcast here. Logan, thank you so much for your time. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Um, This is uh, something that I've been wanting to talk about with more people. um, And I appreciate all of your knowledge and ideas um, on this topic and in your passion for um, trying to help move us in, in a better direction and and you don't strike me as any sort of like totalitarian authoritarian that's like, no, this is what it's got to be. You're just like, <laughs> look, we want to be safe, don't we? Here's some great ideas. And um, I really, yeah. really appreciate that. And I really value that. Um, so thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And I know that sometimes, like I said, there's this big giant tangled ball and it's yeah. hard to know which thread to pull at. So my mind goes everywhere. But no, I think pr- that we can create a pretty good world. I think so too. I appreciate uh, um, all of your effort there. So thanks so much. Thank you. And that is a wrap on the first episode of season two of the Kindness Rebellion. I just want to give another thank you and shout out to Logan for joining me on the podcast. This was his first podcast ever and he did a great job. Um, This was such a good conversation. Um, Please like join the conversation. Let us know like what you thought about certain things. Let's, let's create dialogue with this. Um, I, I would say this, not just with my podcast, but with all content in general, like if you're going to consume it, at least engage with it. Like think about it. You know what I mean? Um, and I'd love to, to continue these conversations and build more dialogue, um, in the online spaces. Cause, um, I, I really struggle with, with being active on the online spaces. If, if you're watching this, um, and you know, you don't even know anything about like my Instagram or my TikTok or anything, it's probably because I'm very inconsistent on there. And I, I really struggle to be on those spaces because there's a lot of inauthenticity. So please engage authentically and please be curious, ask questions and let's, let's build a dialogue and let's learn a lot. Um, again, thank you so much to Logan for being on this podcast. Keep your eyes out for the next episode. Uh, I worked really hard to make sure that I'm going to be more consistent with the releases on these episodes. But um, so please, please uh, keep an eye out, follow, like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. Um, And uh, thanks again for listening to the Kindness Rebellion.